Welcome to Finding Peace in Parenting. I'm Tracy ann and today we're talking about digital dependence and how we can help our children navigate this new technology-filled world we're living in. Hello, I'm Brani, and to help us do this, joining us today is Dr. Christy Goodwin. She is a digital well-being expert, researcher, speaker, consultant, and author of the book Raising Our Child in a Digital World. Dr. Christie is on a mission to help parents tame toxic tech habits and stop our kids being a slave to the screen. Welcome, Dr. Christie. We need you. (laughs) Great to be here. I often say none of us are immune to the digital pool. It doesn't matter if you've got a screenager, i.e. a teenager who's digitally dependent, or you've got a three-nager. All of us are infatuated with technology, and I also think us as adults as well. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Raising my guilty hand here. (laughs) (laughs) That just raises a question we were discussing earlier. What is the difference between dependence and addiction? Look, some people would argue that it's semantics, but I would say the research at this stage, and I acknowledge a lot of the research is still in its infancy. So to have substantial evidence that proves, clinically proves, that children are addicted to technology is really hard to garner. The term addiction is a very heavy term. It's a medicalized term. Heavy. And I'm worried that if we simply label it as an addiction, we don't start to try to look Mm -hmm. at, well, how can we change it? We just, you know, we sort of raise our hands in the air and say, you know, they're addicted and the problem's beyond us. Whereas if we look at it as as an obsession or look at it as a digital dependence. It sounds more pliable. Mm. It does. And exactly the right point. We can then say, well, what can I do to help them develop better digital behaviours? And it's not an anti, I often say it's not about digital amputation, you know, to ban technology completely to go on digital detoxes, to tell kids that they shouldn't have it is completely ineffective. You know, it only ever drives the behaviour underground because I'll go to the friend's house that does have more yeah. like screen time rules. Or for many screen ages, they can go and buy a decoy phone. So you might think they don't have a phone and unbeknownst to you, in the bottom of their school bag underneath the pillow is the decoy phone that you know nothing about. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that there are some children with really problematic digital behaviours. And if parents are concerned, seek Seeking trained medical advice is really critical because there are programs in place, there are support mechanisms in place that can help. So is there any indication of the behaviour of, you know, the children dealing with the uh, dependency of the digital that we need to be wary of than starting to seek for professional help? What's the indication? Yes. So if you are concerned, some of the red flags for problematic gaming behavior is that they start to withdraw from other activities that they typically loved. Now, the problem with a lot of these criteria that I'm about to elaborate on is that it's really Mm. hard to disentangle these behaviors with what we would consider typical adolescent behavior. You know, it's normal for teens to start to withdraw and change their preferences. Mm. If their sleep habits change, again, that could be a normal teen behavior, but it could also be symptomatic of other problems. Some other more clear-cut criteria that we could look for is tolerance. Do they need to play for longer and longer amounts of time or use their device for longer periods to get that same level of satisfaction? Um, One of the trickiest criteria to look out for is withdrawal. You know, do they become agitated, fussy, um, frustrated? In some instances, they become physically violent. You know, I'm inundated with parents 
telling me about particularly their, their son who has become physically aggressive when they're being digitally disconnected. And so those symptoms of withdrawal are really important. But the problem is that in this 24-7 access to technology, it's often hard for that symptom to present because unless they go on a flight, I had a family tell me they went back in the days when we were flying, they went on a long haul international flight and it wasn't until they got on the flight that had no Wi-Fi and their son, their 13-year-old son combusted that they realised wow. just how problematic he was because he didn't have, have access to his gaming console for that 22 hours. Do you think that that aggression comes from gaming in itself more so than social media? Do you think it's more the heavy gaming aspect or just the scrolling aspect? I think you're spot on that that is the um, the gaming aspect. I hear anecdotally from parents, I hear from other health professionals who treat this sort mm. of condition, that it is definitely an issue that's affecting boys more than girls. And again, we don't have the research that looks at this from, you know, an empirical perspective. But what we know is that the research clearly indicates that boys spend a lot more time playing multiplayer video games than what girls do. So that seems to me like a logical conclusion. Now, what happens when they're playing video games for our boys is it taps into some of their, their fundamental biological drivers. They're hardwired to be hunters and gatherers. So they get out there and they forage and they kill things and they, they mm. get tangible measures of their success. We recently recently surveyed boys and what was heartbreaking to hear was young boys articulating one of the reasons they love video games so much is because it's one of the few times of the day when anyone tells them that they're good. They get to experience, oh. they get tangible measures of success. They know how much, how many battles they've okay. won. They know how much ammunition they've got. They know what level they've at. So they've got tangible measures of success. Oh, it's so sad. Isn't it? The other thing that's tapped into that biological driver that might explain the post-screen aggression is that they're getting hits of testosterone, particularly if they're playing mm. first shooter video games or they're going out and seeking, you know, engaging in risky behaviours. This testosterone surge, when you get off the screen, couple it with a bit of dopamine, that feel-good neurotransmitter, and you have got like this surge of emotions that they need to dispel. So a really simple strategy that I say to parents, particularly to bo of boys, I've got three boys, three sons of my own, is that after they've been on a screen, get them out doing something physically active. Can they jump yeah, on the trampoline? Can they? Absolutely, because what that does is it surges. What you're getting when they're aggressive is their body trying to discharge cortisol. They've got this heightened um, arousal state. They've got a surge of testosterone. They've got dopamine, and then you've cut them off from both of those. And so what yeah, they're doing and that's is come down. They're trying to self-regulate. They're trying to calm that that their their nervous system that's been overstimulated. They're trying to calm down their sensory system. You know, there's audio, there's visual, there's fast-paced action. Their heart rate would have been accelerated, and then you take them off the device and put them back into the very boring, very slow-paced real world. And so you're going to get what I often refer to as the techno tantrum. And so yeah. <laughs> physical activity helps the boys. It gives them, you know, they, they get another hit of dopamine, but they get rid of that cortisol, that, that stress hormone that would have built up in that gameplay. Yeah. I call it sometimes, depending on where you live, green time after screen time. That makes 
total sense, yeah. total and sense to me having boys. Yes. What a great advice, mm. um, Dr. Christie. And it's simple. And yeah. also coming back to your note before, some of the boys believe that that's the only time they feel acknowledged and feeling success. So acknowledgement from, you know, they, their close circle of family is also important to get right absolutely so dr christy let's talk about screen dependence and the digital pull or zombie scrolling we know there are algorithms that are actively trying to get us hooked on social media apps how can teenage brains compete with this and what are your tips to help with this digital pull so i'm going to say it is really challenging to expect the teenage brain to be able to cope with the demands of the digital world because part of the brain we call it the prefrontal cortex so it's behind our forehead and this part of the brain is like the ceo or it's the air traffic control system this is the logical part of the brain that makes good decisions it helps us reason it helps us problem solve now unfortunately and i know you have uh, sons so i'm going to bear some bad news for those of us with boys, the prefrontal cortex we know <laughs> doesn't fully develop until late 20s. And for females, it's early 20s. Yeah, it's, we've got a long road ahead. <laughs> when I did deliver seminars in person to parents, I would share that, that news and I could easily identify who had sons because their shoulders would drop. The head would hang, you'd hear the collective <laughs> sigh. <laughs> I don't think my husband's frontal lobe is fully developed yet. <laughs> A lot of men admit that. How old is he? <laughs> but this is the part of the brain, one of its key roles is to help with self-regulation. So its main jobs are impulse control, it's mental flexibility, and it's our working memory. This is also, do you know, just that you say the same things to your children every day, you know, pack, unpack your bag, put your lunchbox on the kitchen counter, put your hat back in. And day after day, you're still repeating the same monotonous instructions. They don't have working memory. Now, to give our kids a digital device where the device and the software that they use and the apps and the games that they play have been designed so there's no end point. The online world is a bottomless bowl. There's no stopping cues. And so when they're playing video games, if you've got a daughter and she's spending lots of time scrolling social media, it is literally like them diving in an infinity pool. There's no end point. So to expect them to be able to say, look, I've had four hours playing Fortnite, that is sufficient quantity. Not I'm going to turn it yeah. off and mm. I'm going to go and tidy my bedroom. Completely unrealistic expectation. To expect your daughter to be scrolling on her phone for hours at a time and then say, look, that is, a, you know, I've hit my benchmark. That's a sufficient amount. I'll unplug it and go and set the dinner table. It's not going to happen because they don't have that, that impulse control coupled with the fact that what they're doing online, even though it's hard for us to fathom, you know, I find it hard to understand why do our I kids know. love yeah, watching I videos of other people playing video games or, you know, countless hair and makeup tutorials. But for our young mm. people, it's pleasurable. So their brain is giving them hits of dopamine, which makes them want even more and more of it. Problem with dopamine is that this is almost like the perfect storm. When their brain gets a hit of dopamine, it floods their prefrontal cortex. So the limited capacity of self-control and the impulse control that they do mm. have gets completely annihilated when they're getting hits of dopamine. This is why we, I'm, I'm going to speak from personal experience here. Why I sometimes say I'm going to have one square of dark chocolate and I eat that one square and it's so fabulous. And before I know it, two Can squares, totally four squares, relate. half the block. It's that dopamine. <laughs> it's overriding <laughs> that, that look guilty. <laughs> 
And then the, the third part of this, the way yet teens are finding it so hard to self-regulate in the digital world and they're sort of, it's the digital pool, is because our most basic psychological driver as humans is the need for connection. We are hardwired to be part of a tribe. We are hardwired to be part of a group. And the online world has been designed so perfectly to meet our teens. Now, biologically, this has happened for years. The natural part of adolescence and pre-adolescence is that children gravitate away from the family and more towards their peer group. So if their peer group are playing video games, if they're on Snapchat, they're looking at TikTok, they will want to congregate in those digital platforms. So it's a natural biological predisposition yes. that has just been, again, our very clever tech developers who had neuroscientists and psychologists in the back engines when they were creating these knew how to tap into those needs. So it's challenging. So true. So what can we do? I don't. I don't want to. I want to give you some practical s- strategies. Yeah. So that was my next question. We yeah. spoke about you know you just talking about being you know how to self regulate. So you know going into nature, sort of creating that balance. What else can we do? Really important. So my core message to parents is that parents need to be the pilot, not the passenger of the digital plane. And as the pilot of the digital plane, you need to establish some boundaries with your child in advance before they're using devices. And you come up with them in conjunction. You don't give them, I don't think it's effective to to present them with an iPad contract or a gaming contract control contract and say sign at the bottom here it's going to be met with little success have a collaborative conversation where you clearly articulate the expected boundaries but they have some buy-in if that makes sense Mm. as the pilot then don't expect them to exert willpower i think as adults you know we acknowledge it's really hard to stop the scroll or to turn netflix off or to stop checking our emails when we're on holidays so we find it hard you can only imagine how hard it would be for our young people so this is where using technology using some internet filtering tools setting up parental controls getting them to start to set a timer so that they're they're jogged into to remembering that they're not supposed to be on there yeah. um another simple strategy when they're on if they've got a smartphone or a tablet take their tech temptations off the home screen because often they'll go in to do something educational or to check you know something that they need to do or to use it in a functional way maybe they need to make a phone call or check the weather but if that tempting icon is sitting on the home screen vying for their attention I, I know I go down the digital rabbit hole it's like the rest of the block of chocolate right isn't it you, exactly stop at one square when the rest is sitting there. (laughs) Steve Jobs, when he first released the the iPod Touch in a press release, said that the colour choice of the icons was so strategically designed that he wanted users to lick their phones, that they would be so appealing. So the colour choice has been, you know, very deliberately designed. So other strategies, you know, when they need to be studying, and this is one of the problems I hear many parents say, but they need to be online to do their homework or their projects. If that's the case, activate do not disturb mode. So they're not getting interrupted. They're actually able to concentrate and maximize their windows. So they're not tempted to open another browser or look at the colorful icons on the bottom of their screen. Only have, and a lot of these apply to us. These are not just strategies kids can use. They apply to us as adults. My last one is to for them only to receive essential alerts and notifications and to bundle them at convenient times. 
So those alerts and notifications come to us constantly and they trick our brain into thinking that they're urgent and important because they make a sound, they flash and they flash again if we don't tap them. And all of a sudden it triggers this sense of urgency. So only having the essential ones. And now with most providers, you can actually choose when they come to you. So can you set it up so that they get their YouTube notifications at the end of the day when homework is complete? At the right time. Yeah, so they don't go down that rabbit hole. Well, you mentioned before about a smartphone. What age should children be given a smartphone, Dr. Goodwin? How do parents navigate this when their child is the only one of their peers without a smartphone or Instagram or TikTok? It all starts with the smartphone. It does. It becomes yes. the smartphone is the gateway drug. A lot of people describe it. It's like the floodgates get open. And I'm going to say at the very beginning, two things. One, it is really, I'm not dodging your question, but it is really hard to prescribe an exact chronological age when children are ready because children hit, hit their developmental milestones at different stages. And we need to look, we're not just giving them a smartphone, we've got to remember we're giving them access to the internet, we're giving them access to a video camera, we're giving them access to a still camera, we're giving them access basically to a whole lot of of other people. So we need to, I think, ascertain, and this is where it's a personal decision and it's an individualised choice, we need to ascertain are they responsible first and foremost? You know, if they're still losing their lunchbox, their school blazer, why would we go and give them an $800 phone that they're probably going to lose or Let's face it, they probably won't lose it because it will be constantly attached to their <laughs> <Yeah>. attached <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's one thing they will never lose. That's right. Um, so I think we, we've got to, be, and my general advice is delay dunking them in the digital stream for as long as possible. I am yet to meet, I have delivered presentations to thousands of parents and I am yet to meet any single parent who says to me, I really regret holding off for as long as I did. I wished I'd given it to them earlier. No. But I can tell you unanimously, most parents who have given their kids one too early say exactly what we were saying just a moment ago, that it, it's the gateway. It, it opens the floodgates. So what is the average age that most kids get a smartphone, do you think? So anecdotally, what I'm hearing is a lot of children are getting them usually in the last two, in Australia, um, this is what the data is indicating, in the last two years of um, upper primary school, so before they hit secondary school, um, most children by the time they are entering secondary school now have access to a smartphone, the overwhelming majority. Wow. Yeah. What I normally say to parents is when we say no or when we're giving them reasons and when they say to you, you know, I'm the only boy or the, I'm the only girl in all of you five in all of Australia <laughs> who doesn't have a smartphone mm, or mm. TikTok or Snapchat or Fortnite, which they do. First of all, fact check that. They'll tell you they're the only one in their peer group that doesn't have one. What I say, if you can, get in early and do what your children are going to do to you, to them. And that is congregate with their peers' parents. And even if it's just with one or two other parents, say, can we all be on the same page? Can we all agree we're not going to get them a smartphone until they're Mm. all in this age? Or can we all universally say we're not going to give them access to TikTok, Snapchat? The other thing parents can do is fall back for social media access, not so much a smartphone because we don't have legal requirements, but for a lot of social media and a lot of games, they have age restrictions. So saying to them, you know, it is against the law for you to have access to this platform. And that's a hard moral standard. That's what I use. You know, that's, yeah, it works well. Or it's it's school policy. The other thing I think I want to say here is tell them it's a no 
and it's a no for now. It's not a permanent no. Let's Mm. revisit this, but give them age-appropriate reasons for your no because it's really hard for them to argue back when you're giving them reasons. And then I think we have to be comfortable with our decision as parents. Our job isn't to be admired and revered by our children. Our job is to keep them safe. And I think we've forgotten, and I say it's, I actually think it's a rite of passage. When your child says to you, I hate you, you suck, and you're the worst parent in the world, Winning. it's a sign you're doing a, a really good job. Yeah, high five. Yes. Pat yourself on the back. But we are so quick to appease our kids. So I often say to parents, if your eight-year-old son came home and said, can I have the keys to the car? I'd like to go and do burnouts. There's no way in the world we would do it. It's just a, a firm no. Yes. Your daughter comes home and asks for a glass of wine. Your 11-year-old daughter asks for a glass of <laughs> wine with dinner. There's no way we would do it. Boundaries. Firm boundaries, loving boundaries, yes. but giving them reasons for those. And it's not a permanent no, but it's just a no for now for these reasons. So, Dr. Goodman, when we spoke earlier about having a smartphone and, you know, the average age is sort of around 12, 11 or 12, And the apps that they get now, the legal age of most apps uh, for social media are 13. Do you think they're mature enough to be able to handle that? It's really hard, again, to to say, but in most instances, the reason that it's 13 has nothing at all to do with their psychological readiness to cope with social media. Mm. It has to do with COPRA, which is their legal age when tech companies are allowed to obtain data from minors. So that is where that age of 13 comes from. It's not when psychologists said, yeah, around... That's a good insight. Around 13 is when they could cope. I mean, a lot of adults don't know how to use social media respectfully and responsibly. 13 is a rough indication. I'm, I'm very open with parents and I understand how challenging it is for parents to, to hold firm on that 13. I say to parents, try and get as close as you can to that age group. Yes. And then once they're on that platform. They're gone. Don't give them access <laughs> without, yeah, well, without supervision. Yeah. Teach them how to use it respectfully and responsibly. We'd never, ever let our kids go into a swimming pool without having had swimming I lessons. I agree. We wouldn't put them in behind the car without teaching them how to drive. Yeah. So I say to parents, and this is often what deters parents from letting them have an account, I say, look, if you find it hard to manage your own social media, by the time your kids are on there, you've also, you don't need to manage it, but you've certainly got to have an active role in it, particularly in the early stages. So parents have to assume that active role. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, again, delaying it as long as possible. Um, and that 13, again, depending on your child's psychological readiness, you know, Can they follow rules? Um, Are they going to have the confidence to come and talk to you when there's a problem? Um, Are they going to be able to navigate it in a respectful way? Um, You know, often it's not what other people, you know, cyberbullying is certainly an, an aspect, but it's also what I call their digital DNA. Are they responsible enough to have the privilege of sharing photos and videos of themselves? Mm. You know, they don't have that impulse control. Yeah, mm. and you think about what they've seen. Some things they, they may see could be completely unsavoury and um, and frightening for them too, right? So to be able to offload that to their parents, you've got to keep that communication up with your child. Absolutely, and this is one of the key things. I know a lot of parents say when they give their child an account or permission to have an account that they do audits and they check, you know, what their child's posting, who's coming into their DMs, what they're commenting on, and that's great. And I encourage parents to do that with their child, not while they're in the bathroom or if they leave their phone at home, doing it with them. Mm. But what parents now, thanks to live streaming videos, 
and videos that appear to evaporate like they do on Mm. TikTok, what parents have got no control over is what their child has consumed. The recent death by suicide that was streamed on Facebook and then repopulated on TikTok is just a prime example. And I sadly was inundated with parents whose children were in primary school who saw that. And I often say to parents, whether it's unsavoury content, whether it's pornography, anything violent, anything that's age inappropriate, our kids cannot unsee things. The damage is done. And emotionally, they can't deal with it yet. Absolutely. It's so distressing for them. Yeah. Dr. Christie, having watched the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, the statistics about the rise of teenage depression, anxiety and suicide is so frightening. In the US, the number of children admitted to hospital for self-harm has risen 189% for preteen girls. Social media is hugely impacting teenagers' self-esteem. What can we do as parents? So I want to just raise a big red flag because I know this documentary caused a lot of angst and panic amongst parents. And I want to apply my research to this conversation and say that some of the statistics in that documentary were cherry picked. They shared a lot of studies that show correlational data. So yes, rates of suicide, rates of self-harm, poor mental health outcomes have certainly increased. There's no denying that. And they did increase around the same time when smartphones and social media gained popularity with young people. I don't deny that for a moment. Mm -hmm. But in most studies, um, what we know is that time on social media only explains about 0.4% of depressive symptoms in adolescence. We also have studies that prove that technology, social media in particular, can have a positive impact on mental health. Mm. So, yes, the, the show, I think what the show did really well, the documentary, was raise some of the concerns about the persuasive design that the technology offers. Yeah. I think it also raised this issue. You know, I'm not for a moment saying that technology isn't responsible in some part. I think it's not so much the actual social media or the smartphone, it's what the time on those platforms and tools are displacing. And it is mm. the displacement of young people's basic physical and psychological needs. Okay. And the three that I think are the chief culprit, that their time online is having a massive impact on their sleep, uh, yes. quality and quantity of sleep, because they're scrolling on their phone and they're chatting to their friends at all hours of the night. Yeah. Completely. The next one that's being displaced is physical activity. They are more sedentary than they've ever been. And physical movement makes all those positive neurotransmitters that makes Mm -hmm. them feel good good. and have Mm -hmm. less depressive, um, you know, symptoms associated with poor mental health. Mm. And the biggest one that I think technology is displacing, why we might be seeing these poor mental health outcomes is because it is eroding the relational connection. Remember mm. I said before, that's our most basic desire. Yeah. And mm. yes, you can chat to your friends online and they can like and share your posts and you can have lots of streaks with your friends on Snapchat, but nothing beats real connection with real people. And so we need that. that. Yeah, mm. nothing compares. You can't. And our phone is no no substitute. So yeah. I think if anything, this, this documentary highlighted that there are problems. My only other concern with the documentary is they told us what all these problems were 
but offered us minimal solutions. No you solutions. know, putting a phone so in a plastic true. box yeah. is not really <laughs> a long-term practical yes. solution. No. Yeah. Didn't yeah. they smash the box as well? Wasn't that? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> Dr. Goodwin, you know, we can influence our younger children when it comes to, you know, technology and social media. But what about the older teens? How do we teach them or not teach them, convince them to self-regulate? I think it's a skill learned over time. So, um, again, having age-related expectations or age-appropriate expectations, you know, Mm. it's really hard for an eight-year-old to self-regulate, but we would hope that we're getting closer to self-regulation at 16. It's not consistent and we Mm. shouldn't expect it all the time. So having um, appropriate expectations. I think key thing is parents having firm boundaries, um, you know, that your no is a hard no. When it's time to switch off, when the, the console has to be put away, when their phone needs to be switched off, that that no is a hard no. Because the minute you cave in, the minute your no becomes, okay, another 10 minutes or whatever you need to do, becomes that very slippery slope. And I think making their unplugged time such a great experience that they want to gravitate to that and crowding out. I often say to parents, you know, if you don't want them on a device all the time, rather than just banning it, crowd it out with other activities, you know, organised sport, um, leisure activities, um, chores, (laughs) Um, (laughs) something else that sort of displaces that opportunity that they have to be online. Can we talk about FOMO? Dr. Christie, (laughs) how do we teach kids to live in the moment when everything is happening online for them and their peers? I'm going to start with the most challenging one, um, and I'm going to acknowledge this isn't easy, but I think we have to be good role models ourselves. It's really hard as parents to enforce good screen boundaries when we are constantly tethered to our phones and laptops and tablets. So I think being that good role model, you know, Mm. monkey see, monkey do. Um, And the reason why, and this is why things like video games can be problematic, is that the brain has mirror neurons, meaning that we are hardwired to imitate what we see. And so if we notice our parents are constantly plugged in, it's really hard for us to then adopt healthier behaviours. I also think... Um, set up family rituals and routines. Um, so make your in-person, you know, I'm going to call them analog, but your your real person connections, those family moments where you're unplugged, really special so that they want to spend more time doing that. And, you know, you don't have to be the constant entertainer and it's not all about holidays and, and fancy things. It's just some of those basic anchors that they say, hey, you know, this offline thing's not so bad after mm, all. Mm, um, mm, mm. And find out what interests them and really tap into that. You know, my sons at the moment are going through a mountain biking phase. Brilliant. And so, yes, they watch YouTube clips on building jumps um, and all the gear that they have to buy apparently, um, <laughs> but then they go off and they do it. And yeah. so I think it's marrying those two worlds. You know, what is it that is interesting apart from perhaps video games, um, but can you use that as a starting point, as a springboard to then say, okay, I notice you're playing a lot of, you know, soccer on on the gaming console. Would you be interested in, you know, playing with me down at the park or should we register you in another, in a team? So I think finding where they are. And I also think acknowledge that it is normal, biologically normal. We went through this where we gravitated away from our parents and to our peer groups. And so I think we also need to say, okay, that's a normal process. And at the moment, some of that 
congregation is going to be in a digital space and be mm. okay with that. I think yeah. we were a bit harsh on ourselves. I know I spent my adolescence with my shoe phone. It was a high heel um, <laughs> with the attached that was dragged from the one port in oh, the kitchen yeah. into my bedroom. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that was our thing, right? <laughs> Completely. I didn't have a shoe phone. And our parents whinged. You didn't? No. I moved from a ha- I had a hamburger and then got a stiletto. I have that. I was I pretty fancy. That. My was so strict. That was so cool. <laughs> Dr. Goodwin, what are other signs to look out for for unhealthy behaviours? We covered it briefly in the beginning, but when when should we be worried So I think if there's a radical change in their behaviour, so if they start to withdraw, if they become secretive, I think they can be red flags, particularly for things like cyberbullying or when an online predator is approaching them. If they're suddenly being secretive or requesting to have access to money and there's no tangible evidence of what they're using that money for, Mm -hmm. often people are caught in tricky situations online where a predator grooms them, requests that they send inappropriate photos, Mm. which they do, and then there's a monetary threat that if they don't keep sending them, they'll be distributed on other platforms. Changes in their sleep, again, some of these are hard to disentangle from typical development. A sudden drop in their school performance or academic performance, but again, that can be just a normal part of development. So I say to parents, if you do have, and I think I I can say this as a mother, I don't know if it's so strong for for the the father figures in our kids' lives, but there's that maternal intuition that something's just not right here. Mm. And I think in that instance, hear that whisper and then go go and speak to professionals, corroborate what you're seeing with their their teachers at school or if they're seeing a counsellor, but go and seek medical intervention or or, or a medical opinion just to rule out. I think we're better to err on the side of of caution and, and rule out anything that's sinister. And that only can come about if we're having open and ongoing conversations with our kids with the children because that's great advice they won't open up to us if we're you know really dogmatic about their screen time and we're constantly telling them that it's bad for them there's no way they'll come to us as the pilot of the plane when they do hit turbulence Mm. yeah gaming is so addictive but it's how children socialize now with live group chat how can we navigate this when it's a large part of our children being social Yes, and I love that you acknowledge that it is an integral part of their lives. So I think first and foremost, don't demonise it. You know, we only create friction and barriers with our kids when we we shame them. You know, you know, how much time do you waste on that thing? And the off the cuff comments that we make to sort of demonise or make it something that's really taboo that they're doing. So one of the best things you can do is show a vested interest, even if you've got to fake it. You know, I'd love to see this game. Play with them. You know, they Mm. love that you're the rookie and that they can kill you in five seconds flat. <laughs> they do. <laughs> you, you, yeah. They tease me so much. You know when they, I remember, what was the one that was big last year, the, the game? Fortnite. 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 And, Fortnite. And they moved so swiftly and I had a go and I was like running into walls. <laughs> I was like this robot. Oh, I hate <laughs> losing. They me so bad. <laughs> But they love that. They really yeah. do love that because, yeah. you know, they can yeah. teach an old dog new tricks and, and they get to demonstrate that sense of competency mm. that they have. So Correct. show a vested in interest 
check the chat, you know, with mm-hmm. them, not when they're, you know, in bed or at school mm-hmm. and, and check the chat. At, I call them random screen audits. So sitting alongside them and checking the chat because this is often where sinister conversations take place. But often the, the unhealthy or the dangerous conversations that take place in this chat get moved from the chat to another platform. Okay. So they will start in the in the chat, but then they'll say, hey, let's get on Skype or let's get on WhatsApp. Some of them are very sneaky at the moment and know that parents are on the lookout for those. But what parents don't look out for are things like Google. So there are a whole lot of sinister conversations happening in Google Classroom, in okay. Google Docs. Um, so again, and you know, they'll be very clever at hiding this, so mm-hmm. having those ongoing conversations. Set firm boundaries, so really clear boundaries around what and when and where devices can be used and where possible keeping them in publicly accessible spots. Yeah. So you can just sort of walk past and do the quick quick glance. And then really important, and this is not just for gaming consoles, this is for any internet-connected device, you must set up parental controls and restrictions, or you Mm. must use internet filtering tools. Um, I personally use and recommend the Family Zone, but there are lots of products out there. But I think we have to do um, due diligence and apply some of these controls and restrictions so we can hopefully, you know, I'm I'm honest and say we can't completely safeguard them and none of the tools and restrictions are 100% fail-safe, but there are things we can do to limit the chances of their exposure to inappropriate things. And essentially we need to be more tech-savvy than our children, don't we? We have to be all over it. We do. Yeah. And that's not easy, but um, that that's where if you've got a local child, like a local teenager or a local university student who you can befriend, um, yeah. they can perhaps explain. Um, Australia's eSafety Commissioner's website has great information on, you know, when your child comes home and says, I'd like a TikTok account and you think they're the little things that you eat. Remember the little lollies <laughs> that we use? Yeah, TikTok. <laughs> you can actually go to the eSafety Commissioner's website and look and and figure it out and find really reliable information. Don't go, and this is one of the common perils, is that a lot of parents go and crowdsource information from their other peers, like their their children's parents, children's friends' parents, Right, and that can often lead to the perpetuation of misinformation. Yes, of course. Yeah, we love to talk. So go to reliable sources. I'm interested to come back to what you said before about digital auditing and digital checking, but do it while you are sitting down next to them. Why is that? Why can't we do it behind them? Yes. So why I recommend doing it with them for two reasons. One is that we want to build trust. And if we do it with them, we are telling them first and foremost that we are assuming a really active role, that what they're Mm -hmm. doing online, because often children think one of the reasons cyberbullying is so prevalent is that they think they have a sense of anonymity online. I can create a fake profile, I can write things, and there's a sense of impermanence online. You know, I share a video, but it disappears. So Mm. to help them to understand what I call their digital DNA, when you audit with them, you're telling them that what you are posting is is permanent and Mm. it has consequences. It also can be used as a teachable moment. You know, you could not um, perhaps see a photo of someone that their peers has posted and you could 
decode it. You could say, you know, is that a flattering angle or do you think they should have posted that when there was a lot of clothes missing? You know, posting inappropriate photos of their friends or, you know, that comment there, how do you think that could have been misinterpreted? Mm. So I think doing the check with them tells them that you value what they do, that it's not something that's taboo or secretive. Mm. Yeah. The other reason is purely (laughs) practical and that is because most children who have a smartphone now have some decoy apps that silently take a photograph. So anytime an incorrect passcode is entered or in- oh. anytime the phone is unlocked without facial recognition. So even if you know, let's say you say, okay, you have the phone, but it's, you, you can have face recognition, but I also want to know your PIN code. They might give you your PIN code, but anytime that PIN code is entered or an incorrect attempt at the PIN code, the device, these apps use the device's forward-facing camera and silently snap a photograph. Oh, my god! So there is a whole, they call them vault apps. There is a whole gallery, perhaps, of you doing (laughs) it. With your triple chin. Yeah. Okay. So, and I think we want to build trust. We want to, and over time, we want to take our hands off the circle any people of that course, have done circle of security training yes. we yeah. like i'm going to be honest my, my eldest son is 10 and he doesn't have a phone but when he does eventually get his own phone we will be certainly having an active role but i'm imagining by the time he's 17 or 18 there are probably going to be things on that phone that i don't want to see <laughs> i have but a 16 year old experience <laughs> you're there yes <laughs> nervously I'm, I'm nowhere near his phone <laughs> It's tricky as they get older. It is. It is. But we want to do this. And this is a really important point. Mm. We've got to do it early. So a lot of people say, when do I start having these conversations and when do I check? The minute you give your child a a, a tablet is when we start enforcing some of these boundaries and having these conversations. So it's no big deal. But going in and trying to retrospectively fit Mm -hmm. and when your child's 16 and going to backtrack some of these things mission impossible no once you've let the lead out it's very hard to pull it back in isn't it yeah so dr goodman techno tantrums do you have any practical tips to minimize family fighting about technology i do these are some mum tested but (laughs) research-based strategies the first one is to have an appealing transition activity so when you want your child to unplug from whatever device they're using give them an option of two things that you know that they like doing. So you might say, when you put the iPad away, would you like to walk the dog or would you like to go for a swim in the pool? When you're putting your phone away, would you like to go and have a bath or would you like to read your book? Mm. So again, when they feel like they've got some agency or control, they're much more likely to participate. And the simple gesture of them turning it off or down or unplugging it rather than you wrestling it from them, again, Mm. gives them that sense of control. Um, The next one is to prime them. Don't go in midway through a fortnight battle or halfway through a group chat that they're part of or halfway through a YouTube episode and demand that they turn it off because what you're doing is cutting off their supply of dopamine. I often say in seminars, I often speak late at night and one of the tricks I've used to calm myself down after a a speaking engagement is to watch a little bit of trashy TV. And so if I was halfway through an episode and my husband came out and said, turn it off, Christy, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. (laughs) Please don't judge me. No, no judgment I said trashy. I said trashy. (laughs) That's a great unwinding. It is. Thank you. You make me feel better. Um, But if my husband was to come out mid-episode and tell me to turn it off, I'd throw a cushion at him. Like I would be irate and would do this to our kids 
all the time. So prime them. Tell them when you finish this episode, when this game is is finished, when you've sent this message, I'd like you to turn it off. Yeah. And when they are combusting, when they're physically aggressive, when they're agitated or just telling you, you know, if, if you've got a daughter, she'll give you the look as if you're, the, you know, the worst parent in the whole <laughs> yeah, world. Yes. Physically touch them. You know, you might need to duck and weave if they're angry and got arms flailing around, but physical touch, even if it's on their arm, it might be just Mm. cuddling them, touching them on the back. Mm. Physical touch releases oxytocin. Oxytocin Mm. is the love hormone. Works for your partner too. Um, Just don't do it with your your work colleagues because you (laughs) lose your job in this COVID. I want to shift the conversation a bit to cyberbully and participating in risky online behavior. What's the best way to lower the risk of our child being cyberbullied or participating in risky online behavior, Dr. Goodwin? A really simple strategy um, is to minimize their use, particularly of social media or of their smartphone mm-hmm. at night. Because at nighttime, the prefrontal cortex, so that logical CEO part of the brain, it's burnt out. It's completely worn out and so it turns off. And part of the brain, it's called the amygdala and it's the emotional hub of the brain. It fires up at night. Have you ever noticed you have more arguments with your kids and partner at night than any other time Mm. in the day? Yes, yes, you're right. Your fuse is much shorter at night, yeah. But literally, Mm. so your prefrontal cortex is off and your amygdala is firing on all cylinders. And so this is why so much cyberbullying occurs at night because young young people aren't making logical choices. They're not problem solving. They're not thinking critically about what they're about to post or retaliating. And their emotional brain is heightened. So they'll send back the inappropriate message. They'll write something cruel or unkind. They'll post the image that is really inappropriate Mm. because there's that disequilibrium. Their logical brain is off and their emotional brain is on. So, again, not no tech at night but minimise their use at night or be prescriptive about what they can do online at night. Is it better that they're watching content, a bit more of a passive activity, rather than interacting with other people? Um, Is it that they can play a video game but it's not a multiplayer video game at night because you don't want the chat as a risk factor? So just putting in place, again, those boundaries that we establish with them My other strategy, and this is I know one that is difficult for some parents to hear, and that is to avoid using technology as a punishment tool. If there is any perceived threat that we are going to digitally amputate them, they will never come to us when there is a problem. And the research sadly corroborates this. Even though there are wonderful programs rolled out in school where kids are empowered and taught and will recite to you, if I'm cyberbullied, I should go and tell a trusted adult, the overwhelming majority of research tells us that when they are cyberbullied, they do not go and tell a trusted adult because they're worried you're going to confiscate the device or take them off the social media platform. Okay. And the parent and the parent may say, I told you so, right, yeah, you know, yeah. and reprimand them in that in a yep. negative way. Yeah, yeah. So, Dr Goodwin, how closely should parents monitor and how frequently what their child is doing online and what age should we stop actively checking their online use? Again, this is a tricky one to prescribe because um, it depends on your child's responsibility. It depends on what tools they have access to. Mm. I think, as I mentioned before, trust is earned over time. So I think we make small incremental steps. They 
prove to you that they can be trusted using the platforms and tools that they are using and that that trust, we, you know, we gradually incrementally take our hands off that, that circle of security. But if there's breaches, so if they do something that erodes your trust or if they download an app that you have prohibited or mm-hmm. they refuse to turn the device on, the, the hands go back on the circle and we gradually almost like taking steps back away from the circle as time goes mm-hmm. on. So it's a really personalised and individualised choice. But again, doing these audits with them so we can have these conversations. But remember, as I mentioned before, we can see what has been curated. So we can see the the images that have been shared and the comments that have been left. But what we've got no idea about Mm. is what videos, thanks to live streaming videos that evaporate or Mm. stories that disappear after 24 hours or streaks that disappear after a period of time, we've got no evidence of what they have um, consumed posted. or seen, so, yeah, exactly, or distributed themselves. Yeah, yes. yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yes. I have a question. What does the research say about using technology as a reward or punishment, like what you mentioned before? Yes. So, like punishments, we need. I often say, I don't shoot on parents. I think we get shoot on all the time, being told what we should be doing. So, in an ideal world, what we need <laughs> looking for another word ideally well, we, could. We, we we could avoid using screens as a reward or punishment now with rewards if we dangle the digital carrot then what we're doing is two things first of all we're elevating the status of technology kids already love it we don't need to offer them more and more of it to entice them to behave or to cooperate the second thing is if we offer it as a reward we create a transactional relationship with them If you unpack the dishwasher, I'll let you play on your PlayStation. If you do your homework really quickly, you can have an extra hour of YouTube. They're using technology as a reward. Now, the punishment side is you hit your sister and taking your iPad off you for a week. Mm. You know, you were rude or disrespectful to your teacher at school. I'm taking your PlayStation off you for a month. Mm. The problem with those is that research on rewards and punishments tells us two things. Firstly, it works mainly for the parent rather than the child because it doesn't address the issue. And that's the second part of it is that it doesn't cause long-term behavioural changes. Rewards and punishments definitely work, but they work in the short term. They don't get to the root of the problem. So rewards, yes, they can work. So this is where I know a lot of parents then say, but hang on, didn't you say as the pilot of the plane you've got to have boundaries? Absolutely. And those boundaries are clearly articulated with your child's involvement, but your child knows what those boundaries are in advance. It's not that if you do this, then you can have this. They know maybe the boundary in your house is that the devices go on at the end of the night, an hour before bed, but after everything, you know, their teeth are brushed, their their homework's done for the next day. Maybe the rule in your house is that they can listen to a podcast after X, Y, and Z have been done. So those rules are clearly delineated and communicated, but in advance. Well, Dr. Christy Goodwin, you've been so, so generous with your time and your knowledge. Thank you so, so much for joining us and helping us navigate this tricky new landscape parents are finding themselves. You have amazing resources for parents at your website, drchristygoodwin.com. There is articles, research, video seminars, master classes, and the Switch On Parents Portal, which we encourage all parents to sign up to. 
so much helpful and practical advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Christy Goodwin. My pleasure. I have enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I still thank you so, so My much. My pleasure. I hope that helps. Is it going to change this afternoon? <laughs> really <laughs> useful. I'm going to go home and crack the whip. <laughs> so thank you, everyone, for listening. And if you would like to get in touch with a question, send us a voice memo to hello at findingpeaceinparenting.com. 